Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to empower you to live a healthy and joyful life. This month's goodie is the Sometimes Say Never report. I wrote it after getting a lot of questions from clients and students about how to distinguish between occasional treat foods and foods you will never, ever, ever eat again. So when should you go nuclear and eliminate a food from your diet permanently? And when does it make more sense to include it in a limited conditional way? If your way of eating doesn't leave you feeling empowered and peaceful all the time, then this report will be a valuable read. And you can get it as well as a subscription to my e-newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, by going to plantyourself.com slash never. And now to today's show. So if you've been listening for the last couple of weeks, you know that I've been, well, I guess the only word to use is bragging about my two buckets of cold water over my head every day and my shirtless runs in 25 degrees Fahrenheit and today we're going to talk with a guy who is responsible for my really ramping up the cold exposure and an, an embrace of environmental conditioning. So, you know, in 2013, uh, Colin Campbell and I published the book Whole, which was all about holism as opposed to reductionism. And my life trajectory from that point on has been ever increasing holistic appreciation of what goes into health. Originally, I applied holism to diet alone, and I felt like, well, as long as everyone's eating a healthy diet, that's all we really need. And then after working with Josh, I began to see the importance of exercise, of movement. And I'd known it, like I wasn't, you know, completely ignorant about it, but really in terms of embracing it in my own lifestyle. And having done uh, a martial art called Sistema, my teacher, Glenn Murphy, has been you know, getting on me to deal with uh, my abject terror at cold and had convinced me since the beginning of June to pour a bucket of cold water over my head every day. But it was only when I read Scott Carney's book, What Doesn't Kill Us, How Freezing Water, Extreme Altitude, and Environmental Conditioning Will Renew Our Lost Evolutionary Strength did I begin to understand the crucial role that just physical discomfort plays in making us healthy, happy, fulfilled, authentic human beings? So for a long time, it was plants and running. For me now, it's plants and running and cold. 
You know how some paleo people will point to like the Inuit who, who subsist on whale blubber and the Maasai who eat large amounts of meat and drink blood and say, well, they're pretty healthy. Therefore, we Westerners should adopt the same diet. And it's utterly ridiculous because there are so many factors that go into what produces health. So when we look at the blue zones, we see people who are eating a largely plant-based diet. They're moving a lot. They're in community. And you know what? They're also drinking alcohol. And every study has shown that alcohol is a toxin. It's not good for you. It increases cancer. It increases obesity. It increases all sorts of problems. And yet these blue zone cultures embrace alcohol. So maybe the problem isn't strictly the alcohol in isolation, but it's alcohol within a context in which people are not moving and eating right and supporting each other and engaging in spiritual community. And we can't tease all that apart. And so if we're looking at what does it take for human beings to be healthy, and we look at who we are, what we are designed to be, what we are designed to experience, what we are designed to do, you can't get away from the fact that human beings have evolved in environments that are very, very different from the one in which most Westerners are living now. And so this show shares a perspective on health that I believe is as fundamental as eating plants and moving vigorously. So without further ado, Scott Carney, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh man, it's awesome being here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so I heard I heard about you on uh, I guess it was like Weekend Edition NPR, and I just got so excited for for this message to like reach so many people. And so you've you've got this new book. It's been out for I don't know a couple of weeks. What doesn't kill us? Um, so, dude, you're doing great. You're on you know major national media. Like, how, how's everything going with all this? Yeah, who knew that uh, that uh, a book about being uncomfortable and jumping into ice water would uh, catch uh, fire, if you'll allow me to pun, uh, uh, so so well. I mean, but but I think that there's there's a message here that that really resonates with people, which is that the environment that you inhabit is important, and and that is a can be a key to staying healthy, and 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 you know, as I showed in the book, actually let you do some pretty amazing things. Yeah. And we'll, you know, let's, we'll, we'll get into that. I'm really curious though about like when I first heard your interview and I, um, contacted you and the publisher for, you know, to do this interview, I was kind of thinking that this, I would talk to you about Wim Hof and, and, you know, and Laird Hamilton and some of the other folks. But the more I read, the more I got interested in your story and the more I, I identified with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I know, you know, your, your previous book, was kind of a, a mirror image, like a dark mirror image of what this one turned out to be, which was like debunking a, a sort of a, a spiritual, physical group that led to that led to someone's death by very irresponsible means. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like that story and and how kind of it predisposed you to approach this one? Right. Well, I don't think this book could have been written without writing my first two books, actually. You know, the first book was about organ trafficking and the really dark side of the medical industry in general, you know, and how people get uh, taken advantage of uh, for the the money that their bodies represent. Uh, The second book was about um, 
you know, an ex- it started with an experience that I had when I was a leader of an abroad program for American college students in India. You know, I, in my previous life, I was an anthropologist getting my PhD. And uh, I, I was leading this this abroad program. I was the director. And we, we ended up on a, on a meditation retreat in Bodh Gaya in North India, where it is the spot where the Buddha attained enlightenment about 2,800 years ago. And... You know, at the at the end of this ten day silent meditation, my best student, the prettiest, the brightest, the most sort of driven of them all, uh, climbed up to the roof of the retreat center and jumped to her death, committing suicide. Uh, and you know, as the director of the program, I was responsible for bringing her body back home and understanding why this happened. And I and I read her journal, and some of the last things that she wrote in the journal. Uh, the last words were, I am a bodhisattva, which means uh, essentially I am on my way to enlightenment. I am essentially an angel. And all she had to do was leave her body to gain this sort of power. And, you know, and the book that I wrote that came out of that experience, A Death on Diamond Mountain, was about this allure of spiritual seekers who are looking to be greater than themselves through meditation and how that can lead them down a very dark path. And, and I, I, I sort of, over the years, collected journals of people who had died on, on silent meditation retreats either or gone insane on silent meditation retreats. And, and I followed, in that book, I followed the story of one particular guy who died in this, uh, on, in a silent meditation retreat in the mountains of Arizona under the tutelage of this very sus- suspect uh, uh, American Tibetan Lama, sort of a white guy in robes, if you will. Mm. And, and so when I, when I found Wim Hof, who makes very similar claims, right, that he can give you superpowers, you know, whereas Michael Roach was saying he could, you know, you could learn to levitate and walk through walls and, you know, various other sort of very magical powers. Um, uh, Wim Hof was making sort of similar claims. He was saying that he could control his body temperature at will and uh, control his immune system. And he was proving that by, by holding, like by dunking himself in ice water and staying there for extraordinarily long amounts of time or climbing Mount Everest in just a pair of shorts and boots, you know, doing these things that are, you know, I mean, they look like they're crazy. I uh, know. No, let me, t- let me take that back. They are crazy <laughs> to do. And, and, and when he was saying that he could teach other people to do this, I was sure that he was going to get people killed. So I, I came out there with the intention of proving to the world that he was just like this other guy I had, I had looked at and that, you know, you should be wary before you get involved with with whim. But it turns out, you know, because I'm an investigative journalist, and I have a, a certain set of ethics uh, when I go in to do my reporting. I had to give him a chance. And so I did his training and lo and behold, in the matter of like seven days, I went from a guy who was in, you know, living in California in Los Angeles, you know, palm trees swaying to his training center, which is in the, the heart of Poland in the middle of the winter. You know, this is the winter that, that stopped Napoleon's army. It's the winter that's, that ground the Nazi army to a halt. 
uh, here I am standing outside in, in the snowy wilderness in just a, a bathing suit with my feet bare in the snow, and I'm standing outside for like an hour at a time, or, or I'm sitting on the banks of a river melting the snow around me, and, and I finish the week by hiking up a mountain uh, you know, nearby his house, a, a ski slope, but it's two degrees outside, and I'm hiking up this whole mountain for eight hours, and I'm burning up the whole time. And it, it, it was so shocking and I had such this reversal in my sort of understanding about these claims that some gurus make that, uh, you know, I knew I had to write a book about it. It's, it's so interesting because like, I, I, you know, we'll get, we'll get into kind of the message, but you know, you began this conversation by saying basically that we're part of our environment and, you know, the kind of the message of the book is that if we're always coddled and bubbled and, and wrapped and protected from it, we don't get to become fully our natural selves and we, and we suffer. We suffer from a lack of resilience and, you know, in, in throughout our history, we didn't really have a choice about it. But now in this little blip of time, we get to, you know, use up all the world's fossil fuels to make ourselves comfortable. Uh-huh. Right. And, and, it's, and it's to our detriment. But... but you know, you, you came into this with the, with the perspective of people who are, who, are try, who are out of the mainstream in this way, sort of to, doing extreme things, are, are basically charlatans and, and, you know, fakes and ultimately destructive forces in, in people's lives. Right. Right. And, and, and you know, the, the thing is, is that even now, I'm still skeptical of many of these claims. I still need evidence for uh, what I get into, and I'm still suspicious of anyone who says it can give you superpowers. Uh, but what I've what I've come to 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 understand for myself about whim stuff that it's not about superpowers. It's about powers that humans already have biologically, that they're already here, and that we've just factored out because of our penchant for comfort, because of our penchant for having uh, using our technology and our minds essentially to take care of all of the external stresses that we have so that we don't experience them on a daily basis. And, and that drive for comfort and, and essentially what home, homeostasis uh, existed throughout the, probably the duration of human history, but we never had the power to achieve comfort at the flip of a switch until about 100 years ago. And evolutionarily, that's a blink of the eye. That's no period at all. Our species is at least 200,000 years old. Uh, you know, and in that time, variations of nature, whether it be a snowstorm or a fine summer day or a scorching hot uh, you know, uh, trek across the desert, we had to survive all of those conditions. Uh, and, and, our, and it was our body's ability to adapt that let us do that. However, in the present day, the, where we live most of the year, is a perpetual sort of early summer environment, like the perfect, you know, uh, easy life. And that's what we simulate with our with climate control, and you know, where we used to have changes in our light patterns you know, that would have to do with this, you know, fireball in the sky called the sun, which, you know, I, many of our your listeners have seen before. You know, that that doesn't doesn't go through the sky at, at a set amount of time. It's not 12 hours up, 12 hours off. It changes throughout the day. And that actually has impacts on, on our inner biology and, and the way we sleep and our sleep patterns. And, you know, and, and these, 
there's just so many things that we factored out because we have electric lighting or we have heat or we have other things that, that insulate us. And we do it because we're comfortable, but that comfort hides suffering. And that's what I'm trying to expose. Right. And, and you know, so in our efforts, so, you know, if human beings basically were running off of this survival pattern, right, in our minds, unless, unless we, we consciously override it, like the, the human response is like, what do I need to do to survive? Right. And like all those comfort cues are like early signals, like I'm a little bit chilly could turn into I'm freezing to death and I'm a little mm-hmm. peckish could turn into I'm, st- I'm starving to death. So we naturally, you know, try to move like comfort is like a, a really useful uh, pre, you know, sort of early warning system. Right. But, but it seems to me that the, 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 the function of culture and of like mature cultures Mm-hmm. And I don't, and I'm not talking about the United States or really most of like, you know, modern consumer culture, but the purpose of culture was to take someone out of that and put them in some degree of danger. So, you know, not, not that, you know, um, w- you know, students are, are jumping off of, of mountains, believing they're bodhisattvas or people are dying by the droves in, in, you know, harsh conditions, but that to move out of comfort does involve some degree of risk. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, doing a, a ropes course where the, the risk is all imaginary. Right. I mean, you have to be careful, right? I mean, the, the whole process of evolution, right. Is that, is that the successful, uh, biological beings are able to pass on their genes successfully and the ones that don't make it, you know, die and, and the genes never, never go forward. So, so evolution is a very violent, process and the stakes are always death and always life. So you know, I, I think we do have to bear that in mind when, when you talk about quality of life and, and, and how one might live beneficially. Um, that's not what evolution cares about. Evolution cares about your genes um, moving down through, uh, through the systems. But that said, uh, you know, we are the product of this billions of years. Yeah, billions of years. Life has been around for about three billion years on the planet. We are the product of billions of years of, of the, 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 the winners. And, and they won because they were in these harsh environments. And, and we have those underlying abilities that are in our bodies now, that, 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 that are honed through eons and eons of evolution. And by taking out the evolutionary pressure, uh, we are not exercising the systems that, that, that have, have made us so successful. Yeah, it kind of reminds me when I when I bought my mother a computer, like you know, the only thing she used it for was like you know email, and I'm like, well, look at this, look at this, look at this, like this is a really, and of course, you know, it's not it's not a great analogy because the computer didn't like pine away and and get worse, and its its uh, RAM didn't shrink because it wasn't being used. <laughs> no, it did though. Think about it. You're, that computer is old. <laughs> it, it has been is obsolete already, probably. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know where it is anymore. Um, so when you, when you went out there, um, and this is all, you know, I don't want to sort of rehash the book cause everybody should get the book cause it is, it is a, it is a seriously life changing book for anyone who is skeptical and likes science because like there's like the science will blow you away. Right? So when, when you first got there to, uh, to experience whims, uh, whims, whims, whims methods, um, <laughs> We like puns here. Keep the puns coming. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure you haven't heard any of them before. <laughs> so your first experience 
of the 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 method like tell tell me about that when you first got kind of got there so we you know I landed in Poland and and I met Wim who doesn't uh you know at first glance didn't seem uh, all that uh, impressive or intimidating. He looks like sort of a life-size garden gnome. He even had a pointy green hat on when I met him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he drives me out into the Polish sort of mountainous wilderness uh, on the east side of, uh, no, sorry, the west side of Poland. And we, you know, it, it, the first thing that happens is after we get out of the car, and I'm with two other sort of people who are paying to be on the course and I'm coming as a journalist. Uh, and you know, I, I, he sort of shows me a bunk and I know I'm going to be there for a week just to see what's happening. And, uh, you know, I'm in the, the top floor of his house and I'm looking outside and there's this dude in his underwear sitting in the snowy field, throwing snow on himself with steam coming off his body as the snow evaporates when it comes in contact with his skin. And I'm like, where on earth have I landed? Like, who is doing this stuff? Uh, and, you know, the guy I, I showed up with, a, name, a guy named Giannis Kuz, uh, says, uh, I can't wait to get out there. And he runs off and strips off and goes out, outside with him. I'm like, I am surrounded by clearly insane people. Uh, but, you know, that night, you know, I don't go out in the snow right then. And that night I'm sort of hanging out with Wim and I'm, I'm trying to gauge him as a, as a you know, teacher or sort of this guy who, who, who makes these really outlandish claims. And, and just because he seems so open and also his flaws are so apparent, you know, he's not the sort of guy who presents himself as a perfect individual by any means. Uh, and and because his flaws were so apparent, you know, he's a he's was an alcoholic for many, many years, a smoker, didn't eat particularly healthy. Uh, you know, it, it, because his flaws were so apparent, it actually made me feel that that he might be a man that you could trust because with his claims uh, and it's sort of a, a converse idea. Uh, you know, usually you want these people to be the epitome of human health, but because his flaws were so apparent, I, I, I said, well, you know, maybe there is something to him, you know, maybe he's not making claims that are just straight out outlandish. And the next day, the first thing we do is this breathing method where uh, where you know we're, we're all lying in his yoga room in the front of the house, and it's freezing in there. So we're actually in our sleeping bags and and lying down, and you you do this hyperventilation method where you take thirty quick uh, deep breaths. You know we call it hyperventilation, but it's not that panicked hyperventilation. It's just like <gasps> like that, and you get really dizzy. And, you know, it, it, it feels a little uncomfortable. You get tingly. And then, then you let all the air out of your lungs, and then you just hold it for as long as you can. And, and we do these, you know, repetitions where you, you hyperventilate and you hold your breath, and you hyperventilate and you hold your breath. And all of a sudden, the, the, the amount of time that you can hold your breath just greatly extends. And I, I think the first time I did it, I was able to reach something like two and a half minutes of, of uh, breath retention with no air in my lungs, whereas... You know, if I if I had done it before then and just tried to just hold my breath, I could maybe hold it for 30 seconds, maybe a minute before I felt that urge to gasp. So I knew that this breathing method was hacking the way my gasp point uh, worked. So what I did, what you do at the end of this breathing, and I think we breathe for about an hour, you know, doing these cycles back and forth. Oh, my God. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's I've, what, I've been doing it this week for, you know, for like three or four rounds ending with push-ups, as you suggest, you know, as you right. suggest for a morning routine. And like this morning I had in the middle of like round two, I forgot what I was doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> it totally happens. <laughs> I, got, I pushed the little button on, I got his app and I pushed the little button yeah. and like it says 27 seconds. Like, where am I? What's going on? Like an hour must be like mental. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, get, you get some really deep spots. So I recommend a 15 minute routine every morning, uh, in the book, but, uh, but as you go deeper, the experiences get more profound. There's different physiological things happen to you along that journey. Uh, but I think that 15 minutes is a great daily practice. Um, but you know, but, but you mentioned the pushups and let's, let's remind your listeners of what happens is that after doing these repetitions of breath uh, uh, of breathing and retention, breathing and retention. Uh, you know, I, I worked up to, I think about two and a half minutes and then you do another round of breathing where you hyperventilate, let all the air out of your lungs and just start doing pushups. And I knew, you know, I'm, you know, a normal guy. I, I, I'm not in particularly great shape. Uh, I could do about 20 pushups. Uh, but when I did this breathing that with, while holding my breath with empty lungs, I did 40 which doubled my number, which was astounding to me. And they felt easy. And it, it was just one of these things where I'm like, wow, Wim has this, this thing that he's figured out. He's figured out how to hack uh, something in my physiology to like double my strength. And, and I knew then that, uh, that there was something very, very cool uh, about this method. And, and as I went and, you know, I, I did all these feats in the ice, it just became easier and easier. But let me ask you to turn the interview around since you've been doing the breathing, how's your experience with the pushups been? So I, I'm embarrassed to say that, um, I've also doubled it. And so now I'm doing 20. <laughs> awesome. Like, like I'm not a weak dude, but for some reason there's something there, I'm doing something wrong with pushups. So I've got to get that checked out because like I fatigue, really quickly or maybe you know maybe i'm just going down really far or something but mm -hmm. uh but it yeah i definitely had that experience like the very first time i did it and the weird thing is i've been doing breath hold push-ups for years actually because i do oh. a uh, a martial art called sistema oh okay which in a lot of ways is very very similar so we don't do ice uh ice cold showers but every morning like i'll pour five gallons of cold tap water on my body while i stand outside Whoa. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So that was fun in May. <laughs> it was delightful in August and now it's fucking miserable in, in February. Right. <laughs> but, but like now is when I come in feeling proud of myself. Oh, well, I, I have to say in the summer, I feel like it's lame. Like you go outside, it's so easy and I enjoy nothing more than jumping in my cold shower now because the pipes are, you know, running through the ground here in Denver and it, it's cold. It's coming out of the tap at like, oh, I should measure it. Um, but it feels like, you know, maybe 50 or 48 degrees. Uh, and I love it. I feel like in the summer, you, 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 the, the tap water runs so warm that it's like, it's barely even a challenge. So that's one of the things I, like I had my notes to ask you about just personally is like, at what point do you start not dreading this? Cause I've, I've been doing the, the, uh, you know, basically a double ice bucket challenge mm -hmm. every single morning since May and every single day I wake up and I try to talk myself out of it. Yep. Yeah, totally. And I, and I don't think that will ever change. I think that is, um, the hardest thing that a person can do probably 
in life in general is stand in a warm shower and then turn it to cold. I mean, I think that is the ab- absolute hardest thing <laughs> that, that because you're in this comfortable spot and it feels so good. And then you're like, really, I have to do this. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't get easy to do, but, but afterwards you feel so great. Right. And, and then even after just, you know, uh, you know, two or three seconds of this cold water coming down on me, then I, I remember that it's actually not so bad. But I feel like I do teach myself that every single time. And maybe that's why the method is so good, because it actually works on, you know, th- that's basically my, in, my, in, my own subconscious saying, no, I don't want to be uncomfortable. And that's me telling it to shut up. And, and it's a hard thing to do. And if you do it every day, every morning, then that's something that, that makes the rest of the day easier. You know, it's, it's, and it's showing that it's, you know, it's a small thing, right. To turn a knob, but it's also a really hard thing to do. And, and it's, it's, it's really nice. And and I don't find the cold difficult to deal with. Uh, It's really just the decision to go into the cold, which is hard. Yeah, that's one of the things that they talk about a lot in in my practice is it's the discipline comes from like filling up the bucket. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like once you're pouring it, you're not going to stop. Yeah, you're committed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, this is a, an issue with the the you know with any sort of practice, right? Is that getting yourself into a disciplined routine uh, is the hardest point. You know, if I'm sitting doing the breathing routine, I don't do it every day because sometimes I just would rather have coffee, and that's me succumbing to my comfort more than anything else. Uh, whereas it, once I do the breathing, once I do three breaths, I know I can do the whole thing. It's not it's not going to be a big deal, you know, but it, it, it is the sitting down and the discipline to get yourself there, which is so important. And I always feel better once I've done it. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the paradox. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've retrained my nervous system to not flinch like I like I discovered. So so one of the things I've been doing since I read your book is now I'm running I'm running shirtless mm-hmm. and and I'm running different routes. So more people will see me. Yeah, right, right. Totally. I'm totally embarrassed by that, by that revelation. But I'm like, hey, this, you know, like the, the traffic-y roads that I usually avoid, like, I'm like, oh, look, <laughs> now they'll see this dude running at, uh, you know, 35 degrees and with no shirt. And that will right. be well, me. You know, one of the first shirtless runs I did uh, was actually in Central Park, uh, and, you know, which is the, the most visible place to do it. And it was in the middle of, uh, it, I think it was like March and it was really it was snowy and cold. Uh, and you know, everyone's sort of like heads turning and high fiving and there's this sort of showboaty thing about it. And it sort of maybe, uh, you know, feeds a certain ego side of things, but you know, it's also fun. And, and I think that, 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 that it's important to have fun with these practices, uh, that look extreme that, that, but then that really aren't, you know, once you're running and you're actually moving, if you have a hat on and maybe gloves if it's really cold. So, so your extremities don't, don't, um, plummet too much. Uh, you know, you're generating so much heat from running that, that it doesn't actually feel bad. You know, it's only bad in that first minute or two as you're working up heat. And if you do like push-ups beforehand, you're not cold ever on the runs. Oh, okay. That's a, I'll try that. Um, yeah. I mean, one, one of the things I discover is that most of my aversion to cold was my aversion to my reaction to the cold. It was this, this sort of squeaky flinch. Mm-hmm. 
like, you know, my family thinks this is hilarious. Like when they're up and I'm doing it, they'll look out the window shaking their heads like because this is the guy. If if I was at the stove cooking and someone like took their moderately cold hand and like touched my back with it, my bare yeah. back, I would like freak out and yell at them and scream. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this is what what I'm calling in the book, the wedge. Right. And this is the, sort of one of the concepts that, that I, I use to explain what the Wim Hof method really is doing, which is <clears throat> and, and you're using the word flinch. Right. But but I, I would describe that as that that's your automatic reaction is that that shock that that is, it's like tr- tweaking your fight or flight responses, actually. Yeah. Uh, and and what you're doing is is using your mind to master this panicky response uh, that you have. And that actually has a huge impact on your body in general. It's, it's putting your mind, your conscious mind, in control of what is essentially an unconscious process. And uh, I, I sort of think that that is one of the ways that humans learn to use their bodies in the first place, is that we... You know, when you're an infant, right, you don't really control anything in your body. You're sort of plopped out into the world and you have to sort of figure out what you're doing. And as you control your limbs, you're extending mental control over physical processes. Although, you know, we look at them as very easy now, like, you know, walking or, you know, using your arms. But at that point, it's a it's it's a it's a struggle to, to get anywhere and you're developing neural connections to do it. So what we're doing when you, when that that, you know, your wife touches your back with her icy cold hands, that. That flinch response is like your auto- autonomic response. And then what you're doing is saying, no, look, it's, it's not that bad. It's just a, a sensation. You know, the sensation won't kill me. Uh, I'll be fine. And then, and then you're subduing that. And then you actually gain control uh, by an almost sort of like it's, it's difficult to explain uh, how, it, how it exactly happens. But, you know, controlling that sort of panicky response to the cold seems to extend also over control over like your autonomic nervous system for immune, uh, immune issues. And that's, it's a weird connection to have. And it doesn't seem straightforward at first, except that, that your immune system seems to have some connection to your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. And yeah, I haven't experienced that particular uh, thing yet. But I mean, what I do notice First of all, that when someone touches me with their ice cold hands, it's, it doesn't feel that cold anymore. So partly mm. like physiologically, like the blood vessels and capillaries have changed, but also what I was experiencing, I was magnifying with this you know, crazy feedback loop and turning it into like swords and daggers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and our, our brains are designed to panic. We love, it loves to panic. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a hobby. Right. And, and when you give it sort of rational information, uh, you know, all of a sudden standing in the snow for five minutes really isn't that big of a deal. Like, and jumping into ice water, I promise you, no matter what ice water you jump into, it'll, it'll be very difficult for it to get below 32 degrees. Right. Right. You know, it's, 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 you know, if you add some salt, you might be able to get it down to 30 degrees, but ice water is liquid for a reason. (laughs) And and we know that in 32 degrees, you're not going to get hypothermia in five minutes. It's it's just not going to happen. Right. Well, I've I've, I've yet to uh, to try that one. Oh, well, do a polar bear plunge, man! It's it's awesome. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about like at the moment, like all the t- all the things I've missed out on because I was always like a water wimp and a cold wimp, and like you know, we'd be on vacation somewhere, and the like it would be like an 82 degree pool, and everyone's having fun, and I'm like. No, I think I just want to read. Like it was this total, 
fear of that kind of discomfort. Right. So many things I've missed out on specifically around, around cold and wet. And I'm kind of, yeah. I'm kind of relishing. And, and it's amazing how quickly, like you write, the first time is going to be the worst. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing how quickly it wasn't that bad. Yeah, it's it's like it's awe inspiring, you know, and it comes down to a question of of evolution, right? That our ancestors, the ones who are, you know, crossing deserts and climbing mountains with a whisper of what we have for technology now were, you know, their biology had to adapt quickly. And, And if it didn't adapt quickly, they didn't pass on their genes, right? It wasn't like snowstorms coming. I'll, I'll talk to you in three months when I'm ready for it. No, it was like snowstorms coming, cold front. We let's get, let's get down to business. Uh, and, 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 you know, a, a lot of those early warning signs, those panics are just warnings, right? And, and if your body doesn't have a baseline to identify the danger of a stimulus, it's going to trigger its warnings super early. And if it sort of has been through the rounds a few times, it's not going to worry as much. Uh, and then, and then you can start really assessing what real danger is, you know, you, cause there is danger out there. Like we can't, you know, go infinite amounts of endurance, you know, that we, you can't throw me into the vacuum of space and my suppression of my shiver response is going to, you know, let me live. I'll die. Right. Just like <laughs> you might expect. Uh, but, uh, but I can do a lot more than I ever anticipated. And, you know, you know, I climbed up this mountain in Poland, but at the end of the book, I'm tackling Mount Kilimanjaro, which is, you know, the tallest mountain in Africa. And I'm doing it shirtless and, and in shorts uh, most of the way. And, you know, there's times when it dips down to negative 30 with wind chill. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly comfortable, but I'm, but I'm okay. And I know where, I, I, where my limits are. And I also know when to put on a jacket, right? I also know where that is, but it's way farther away than, than you might expect. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting that like the word okay is so crucial because it basically means I'm going to live through this. Like mm-hmm. it, it it didn't destroy me. And you know, a right. lot of my my coaching with people around health is you know, they'll they'll they don't understand why they're binging, why they're not getting up in the morning, and it's usually like some feeling comes up, like they're, you know, they're scared of something or they they have anxiety or depression or fear. And that immediately translates into, I've got to get rid of this feeling. And the way I know how to do that is with food, usually. Ah, right. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And and so the ability to sit through whatever feeling and say, you know, this sucks. It's not supposed to not suck, but Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. Like that baseline of, I'm not, you know, what doesn't kill us, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm okay. It can feel like such an empowering realization because we spent our whole lives trying to avoid this thing that we thought would never be okay. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, uh, all of your, many of your listeners are, are listening to this right now and thinking to themselves, well, you know, these guys might be able to handle the cold, but I am especially unable to handle the cold. Like no one is as unable to handle the cold as me. And this is that, that this is a universal thing that I hear <laughs> when I'm talking about this book. I know you listener are thinking this right now. Uh, and it's what everyone thinks. And it's just not true. Uh, unless you have there, there are certain uh, actual medical conditions uh, that that do occasionally show up for people, but you probably don't have them, right? <laughs> you know. And I'm not just talking about Renaud's disease. I'm talking about um, 
I think it's called chillabans. Like there's, there's certain reactions where your body is so used to comfort that you're just so out of kilter, like forever that, that you have to go really, really slowly, uh, to, to get anywhere. But the truth is that we are made to be able to adapt to this. And the, the part of you that's saying is that I am especially unable to handle this is your inner wimp talking. <laughs> I feel like end, ending this by editing in like my kids talking about me for two minutes because I, I was like, I would have been that listener. Like nobody hates the cold and the wet more than me. I mean, it's, it's everyone, right? It's, it's a universal human response for all of us who have lived most of our lives at 72 degrees, rain or shine, snow or sun. Uh, it, you know, it, we don't have, we don't have a temperature variations in our lives. So why would our body want to go to something that feels extreme? Uh, you know, I lived in India for a long time. Uh, and this is actually really interesting. And I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this on podcasts uh, before is that India is a pretty hot place, right? It, 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 it you know, you, you can run into 44 degrees Celsius, which I guess is like 120, which is not nice to be out, out outside in. But, you know, when I had air conditioning, I had an apartment and, and when I had air conditioning, it was awesome because I'd go inside and I could be cool and and it would feel great because I, I, I was you know dehumidified and all that stuff. But then I couldn't go outside anymore because it just felt unbearable. I couldn't deal with that heat anymore. But in the times when I didn't have air conditioning, you know, when I'm traveling, uh, you know, I'm an investigative journalist. I've done like the war correspondent stuff and I've, you know, traveled in sort of the the the. the really difficult areas in India, or when I was a, a college student living there in the deserts of Rajasthan, you know, the, 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 the air conditioning was sort of a treat that you go into sometimes. And it actually started to make me feel sick when I was in AC because the, the natural, my body was getting used to dealing with the heat and, and that changed the way my sweat glands work, the way, the way the capillaries and in, in, uh, in the surface of my skin dissipated heat. And, and, you know, you, you get used to sort of different sets of, of, of temperature variation and, and these technological crutches that we use, which at times can be nice, actually stop your body from, from being able to inhabit the environments that they're designed to survive in. Right. It's like, yes, yeah, like we're, you know, when you, when you look at it globally, we are the environment, mm-hmm. right? Like I remember listening to an interview with Ram Das from 30 years ago where he's, sitting stuck in traffic, cursing the traffic. And then he goes, oh, you know what? I am the traffic. Right. It's yeah. like, we are the environment. We are other people's environments. And we're, you know, we were, we were designed for, for earth, not, not for, uh, you know, holiday in. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And, 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 you know, I, th- I sort of end the book on that, on that idea in the epilogue is that, you know, we are drastically changing the environment with our sort of our technological advancement and using intense amounts of resources to feed this drive for comfort that we all have and that we don't need to do that. We can just try to feel a little bit more in touch uh, with the world around us and, and we'll be okay. It won't, it won't kill us. Yeah. In fact, one one of the things, you know, when I started working um, with people on their health, it was largely about food and nutrition and, you know, I can teach people what to eat in about 12 seconds and I can give them all the information they need on an index card. So it clearly wasn't knowledge, right? It was, it was implementation and people would feel like, like I said, they'd have, you know, they'd have these negative feelings and they would immediately reach for comfort foods, highly palatable, fatty, you know, processed foods. Delicious. Delicious. (laughs) 
<laughs> to make themselves feel better in the moment. And yeah. that's a really hard thing to train out of people. And what I discovered is that when you train people to experience discomfort, whether it's like, I'm going to sprint for 30 seconds and it hurts and it sucks, or mm -hmm. I'm going to do this breathing exercise for two minutes, or I'm going to pour a bucket of ice water over my head. Like those, they have a finite end point. It's not like you may never have a Snickers bar for the rest of your life. Right. But, but the skill of, of not being, not um, sort of indulging your comfort in the moment is a really transferable skill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it brings up this idea, which is sort of a catchword these days of resilience, uh, is that, that we are designed to, to be resilient. And, 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 you know, if you, if you start exercising those muscles, you get, a, a you know, robustness in general and you, you are, you get healthier mentally and physically healthier. So let's talk about that a little bit, because you've done a, a great job of distilling and explaining some of the science. And, you know, this, mm -hmm. and when I read the science chapter, that's when my, like, greed gland started going off. It's like, I could be like the, uh, the billionaire founder of a chain of, uh, of spas that had all this stuff available for people. Um, because <laughs> Do it, man. <laughs> I'm good behind you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so all the investors who are listening, you know, just get, get in touch. Um, but it's like, you know, there's, there haven't been that many people who've done this so there, there haven't been that many people to study, but, the, but as it grows in popularity, like we're, it's clear to me that the research is going to show incredible benefits. Like mm -hmm. it's, you know, you can, you can do as much with, with cold therapy for diabetics, for type two diabetics as you can with like, you know, significant dietary changes. Can you talk a little bit about like the big scientific findings that really oh convinced God. you this wasn't just like you hallucinating in the snow? Yeah, well, there's 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 several, and I don't know if we'll be able to get to all of them. Uh, two or three. But, but so the the most interesting study on whim, I believe, is something called the endotoxin study, and this is where a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, gravitate to why the Wim Hof method is is useful for autoimmune illnesses. So Wim, being the crazy guy that he is, uh, said. Had a conversation with a doctor, an immunologist over at Radboud University in, in the Netherlands, named Peter Pickers and his student uh, Matthias Cox. And he said to them, "I can consciously turn off my immune system." How that conversation started, I really have no clue, <laughs> uh, because who says something like that? Uh, but he did, <clears throat> and and Pickers is is very well known and very well respected uh, for developing a test for. Uh, uh, immunosuppressant drugs like cyclosporin. Uh, and, and what those drugs are useful for is if you got like an organ transplant, uh, your body would naturally look at that, you know, spare kidney that you have uh, and, and see it as a foreign invader and it would try to attack and destroy it. How, so what you do is you, you dose yourself with something called cyclosporin or various other, uh, you know, autoimmune suppressants to, to, to turn your immune system down or even off so that it doesn't reject the, the organ. So he developed a test to see if an immunosuppressant drug actually did what it was supposed to do, uh, which was he would inject somebody with a heat-killed E. coli bacteria called endotoxin. So it's not the live bacteria, but it has all the, the 
um, signals on its membrane that says that it's da a dangerous invader. And if somebody gets injected with endotoxin, their immune response immediately activates, which means you'll get a fever, you'll have achy joints, runny nose, all of the normal primary immune responses uh, that you have. And the way he would tell if an immunosuppressant drug worked was that that person wouldn't have those reactions. So Wim making this claim that he could consciously turn off his immune system, which was technically impossible according to the, the science of the moment, uh, uh, Picker said, well, this is easy enough to test. So Wim, they injected Wim with endotoxin and lo and behold, there was no reaction. All he complained about was a minor headache. His immune system never turned on. And in fact, the blood that they withdrew, the blood samples that he withdrew, um, Never, uh, even when it was outside of his body for multiple days, I think it was three or four days, it never worried about the endotoxin. So not only was he able to suppress his own immune system, the blood itself outside of his body was able to do the same thing. And this was mind-blowing for the scientists. They were like, this is almost a new paradigm shift. Uh, so the scientists would, would argue that, you know, and, you know, people who read the paper was like, this is an interesting study, but maybe Wim is a freak. Maybe he's got some sort of genetic thing that he's just not responsive to endotoxin. And about 1% of people who get injected with the drug have that a response similar to Wim's. So Wim made a follow-up claim that not only was he able to suppress his own immune system, he could teach other people to do the same thing in only a week. So Pickers and Cox took him up on his uh, second challenge, and Wim uh, took 12 um, uh, Dutch college students uh, into his training program in Poland, the same exact training program that I did. And at the end of that, they took him back to Holland, and they injected all of them with endotoxin, and they all repeated Wim's results, hmm. showing that this was uh, showing that 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 you can consciously suppress a, an immune response. And that is huge. This, this article, whenever it was, it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, and you know, it, got, it got nods on Nature's website, it was all over the internet, because it, said, it, it proved something that was impossible, is that you can consciously suppress immune responses. And, and the implications for that are enormous, because every autoimmune disease is essentially your body attacking itself. So rheumatoid arthritis, when your immune system identifies its joints as foreign invaders, uh, it could, could theoretically be reversed by Wim's things. Crohn's disease, to some degree Parkinson's and alopecia, you know, all sorts of things where your immune system is going haywire. Uh, it, it seems that you can, do, you can use the Wim Hof method to reverse it. And in the book, uh, I, of course, I asked that question, can I find people who've done this? And I, I outlined four case, case studies of people who, you know, were crippled by one illness or another, and then were using the Wim Hof method uh, very successfully to, to counteract their symptoms. Right. So, so what was he doing and what did he teach them to do like in the moment? So was, was it like consciously like directing the, the immune cells to chill <laughs> was was he breathing? Was he was he doing ice baths right beforehand? So uh, in, he they did the ice training. So that's the getting used to to being calm in the ice. 
uh, and suppressing your autonomic response to shiver. That's the basic cold uh, method that you use. So if you're in that, 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 that environment that's supposed to make you panic, um, you suppress that and you try to relax. That's the cold method. And the breathing is what I explained earlier, the hyperventilation and retention. And uh, in the, during the test, they had done the cold training for a week, and I think they had done the breathing right before they got injected with endotoxin. So it's a, it's a daily method. Uh, you know, you really have to do this all the time. Uh, and and what they did in the moment while they were being injected, I think they, they used this sort of third eye meditation, which is something you do in the breathing exercises, which is just sort of calm your mind and not really think about anything, but just focus on whatever you see behind the lids of your eyes. Uh, a very, very entry level basic meditation. And and that's really all they did. And uh, the responses were great. And And incidentally, growing up, for me, I was always afflicted by uh, canker sores, which are these sort of lesions that you get in your mouth that are, might be related to a, a version of the herpes virus. But I got them since I was one years old. And I think because I was introduced to that virus at such a young age, it was actually very virulent in my body. And I could get these dime-sized uh, lesions in my mouth. And I would get them like every month and it would take a week for them to go away unable to smile, very difficult to talk. Like it was really a, a horrible thing. I started to think of myself as a canker sore survivor <laughs> instead of just someone who had some of these sores. And since doing the method, I don't get them anymore, mm. which is amazing. It's like the biggest relief because this was a horrible thing for me to, to deal with. Um, but they just don't come. And it's, it's, I, 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 the only thing I can attribute it to is, is the method. And so you're, so you're not, like trying to go in and like consciously hack something, right? It's just the me the method itself. You know, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't turn off your immune system, obviously, because right, because you don't you're not getting colds and and flus and you know. Well, I, st I I still can can be susceptible to the normal range of illness, but I think I recover quicker uh, because of it. And the, the, the thing with the autoimmune response, and I think this is the reason why the Wim Hof method uh, works, is, is to going back to this idea of homeostasis. Now, remember our ancestors, constantly variable environments, uh, also uh, a range of viruses and bacteria in the natural environment that we would always be uh, uh, afflict us. And now we live in these sort of antiseptic uh, places. Where, where not only does our a nervous system not get uh, a lot of stimulus through temperature and various other environmental things, but also we don't get the, the bacteria and the other things that, that help train our immune system to deal with a diverse environment. Uh, the immune system itself, however, evolutionarily has to be uh, aggressive. It has to be a predator for all of these, these incoming threats that it has to deal with. And the immune system and the nervous system, the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems are connected at some point where, where they, they sort of have to work in concert to deal with external threats. Now, when you start doing the, the method and you start giving yourself external stimuli that, that, that trigger your fight or flight response and then you modulate that fight or flight response, it's, it's very similar to giving that, that wolf predator in your immune system, all these macrophages and killer T cells and neutrophils and all those, those specific cells. It's like giving that thing a chew toy. 
to deal with. <laughs> and, and and so then it's like, oh, I got this to deal with. And so it doesn't have to go bother your joints that it was basically chewing on. Uh, and, and I'm sure this is rigorously scientific to use this meta, this language, uh, you know, uh, it, it's giving it a hobby more or less. <laughs> and, so, and, and the, the implication there is that it's not like turned off for everything. It's just turned off for things that aren't really threats. Exactly. You know, so that, you know, you, you know, so, and it gives you more robustness to deal with these illnesses. I don't know if you've seen these viral videos that are going around right now uh, on the internet of kids in Siberia. Yes. Uh, uh, throwing ice water in the, on themselves during their recess and then coming back in for some, some uh, hot tea at the end of like five minutes in the snow. And the teachers at that school are saying uh, that they, their kids don't get sick anymore. <laughs> Because their, 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 their bodies have something to do. And that's really counterintuitive. That's not what we do in America at all, right? We think of our kids as these things need to be put in bubble wrap and never exposed to a danger. Because a free-range kid in America can get you arrested and have CPS called on you. Right. <laughs> uh, but in truth... You know, and when I was a kid, I was running around in the muck all the time, uh, you know, playing a game I called Adventure, which basically meant I got to pick up sticks and hit trees with them or, you know, whatever I was doing as a child, uh, you know, and I was exposed to sort of a wide variety of stuff. And I think that that is good. And I think that we, we need to encourage uh, those sorts of activities uh, growing up because it seems to, you know, obviously you don't want to get people into danger. We, we don't want people to get hurt or kidnapped or any of those, uh, those things, but we also don't want to coddle something so much that, that the unconscious, the, the nervous system doesn't have a chance to learn, to deal with stress. And that's, I think one of the biggest threats, um, you know, in, in rearing a child anyway, that, 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 that we have going right now. Right. And, and it, 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 it ties into our, our sort of cognitive bias for avoiding, instantaneous danger versus long-term degradation. Like we're much more scared of terrorist attacks than heart attacks. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which statistically is stupid as hell. Yeah. Uh, oh, totally. You know, I mean, and, and I, I mean, yeah, we, we're, we're so afraid of the big name brand, uh, fears, the name brand boogeyman that we forget that, that the real boogeyman is our lifestyle. Uh, and the real boogeyman is the way we are, um, the way you live your life day in and day out, not the, not the, the masked bandit that's going to ruin your life. Although there are masked bandits out there and they do are, they are terrible to run into. Uh, but the likelihood of that is very, very low. So what, one more, uh, science bit that I'd love to talk about, cause, uh, I'm imagining there's more than a few people on the listening who are interested in weight loss. Sure. What's, what's the, what's the skinny on, on weight loss using the, you know, Wim Hof method or, or, you know, and it's not just about Wim Hof. You also talked about these other athletes who do extreme sure. things. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're using Wim Hof as shorthand. I mean, the book is really about environment, the environmental exposure. And he just was able to be a nice door into this method and into, and, and gives a method to it that so versus just an idea. But so with diet, with obesity and diabetes, these are issues where you essentially have too much energy in your physical system and that gets stored as fat. And for, for diabetes, you have sugar and insulin resistance, which, which is also a part of it. And many of your listeners probably real, know uh, that if you try to, if you have a pot belly and you want to go out and, and 
exercise it off, uh, it becomes very, very difficult to do that because your body would much rather burn muscle and, and you know, sort of name brand uh, tissue than it would fat in order to, 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 to fuel the exercise. So that exercise, while it can over time decrease your weight, it's a very, very inefficient and difficult way to do it. Now, the reason for this is because uh, fat, white fat, actually serves a different purpose in the body. And, and it, it, it's not to store it for food energy. That's its secondary purpose. Its primary purpose is there to heat your body uh, in a pinch. And we're all born, every infant, every human infant is born with uh, something called brown fat or brown adipose tissue, which is a, a fat-like substance that uh, sits between your, on your thorax and in between your shoulders, uh, that its only role is to suck white fat from your body and burn it for heat energy, what, what doctors call thermogenesis. And babies need this because when they're born, they don't have the musculature or digestive system or circulation system uh, to heat the body the way every adult does. Uh, you know, when we move around, our muscles generate heat by just the kinetic uh, motion of it. And our digestive systems are moving and that, that friction and the, whatever those movements are create body temperature. But for an infant who doesn't have that, that very developed um, digestive and circulatory system uh, and a very high surface area to mass ratio, it loses heat very quickly. The only way they survive is by sucking out those fat baby fat rolls and transforming that into heat, uh, you know, which is why premature babies who don't have fat need to hang out in incubators uh, for so long because they don't have any way to deal with this thermogenesis. So as we get older, in Western civilizations, brown fat disappears and we start relying on our muscle activity to heat us up. And until 2007, uh, almost every doctor in the world thought that brown fat was this vestigial tissue in adults and didn't really exist until a study in 2007 by a doctor named Aaron Sipis over at Harvard, uh, who's moved on to NIH now. He was looking at these like weird blobs in PET-CT scans for cancer patients that would always show up as uh, cancerous tumors in bodies, in, in human bodies. Uh, but when they biopsied it, they never found anything at those tumor spots. So he was trying to figure out what these weird splotches were. The way PET-CT scans work is they actually test metabolism. So they inject you with this radioactive dye and that gets picked up by, by metabolically active tissues, which tumors are one of those tissues that's metabolically active. So that's how you identify tumors. But what were these splotches? And so Cypus eventually deduced that the, the locations of where the splotches were correspond to where brown fat, this vestigial tissue, is supposed to be. And he realized that the rooms where people were getting their PET-CT scans done were cold. And that these people were sitting in these cold scanners and their brown fat was lighting up because it was trying to, to heat the person's body up and suck white fat from their systems and, and, and burn it for heat. And this sparked a huge research initiative at the NIH and other, and other institutions to find out if we can use BAT to, um, if, if it's active in adults, if we can supercharge that, we could turn off, you know, you could use that as a way to lose weight very rapidly. 
so that's where that the, the state of that research is. And, and you know, as we've and and to go into the full discussion of it, it's actually going to take a rather long time. But the 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 crux is is that people who regularly expose themselves to cold are able to build up uh, BAT brown fat or other metabolic tissues and other parts of the body uh, to, to compensate for the cold. And, and we've seen people lose weight very, very rapidly um, by being cold. Uh, when I was with Wim, I lost seven pounds in seven days. Mm. And I was eating a Polish diet of pierogies and sausage and whatever else Polish people eat. Uh, and it, it was just because my body was very, very active at trying to heat itself. And eventually I built up BAT. And and that's great that now I can deal with the cold and I'm using my fat as the fuel to, to, um, heat my body. So instead you're, you're using your fat for the primary purpose for which it exists in the first place. Exactly. Uh, and isn't that grand, right? And, and, and with diabetes, you know, another study that I mentioned in the book, uh, they put, uh, 12 guys who are overweight with diabetes in a room in Germany that was 51 degrees. Uh, and they put them there for three hours a day. They were just wearing shorts and a t-shirt and they just watched TV, I assume. And after three weeks of this treatment, uh, their insulin resistance, which is the, you know, the one of the, is what you're measuring when you're measuring the effect of diabetes, uh, reduced by 54% just by being cold. That was all they did. And that's amazing. Yeah. So, and, and in the book, I, I mean, I, I loved, you know, the irony of okay, we've discovered that this brown adipose tissue is amazing, and so now, of course, all the pharmaceuticals are, are pouring billions of dollars for the next weight loss blockbuster in this reductionist quest, to, in the assumption that it's only the brown fat or the brown mm -hmm. fat between the shoulder blades that is gonna is gonna set off this reaction. And, you know, you make the point is, yeah, well, you know, maybe there's maybe there's something there, but we don't know what else that drug is going to do. And we don't know what else, you know, we've just discovered this. We don't know what, how the whole system works, but we do know that being cold works all of it. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's so it's so typical of the American scientific pharma, pharmacological paradigm, right? To be like, oh, we have an idea. We found a tissue in the body. We're going to maximize it, its effort. And that's the whole key to the success. And then, you know, five years later, they realize that it was too myopic a view. And actually, there's more stuff. And so the cold is great. And and what they found with those diabetic men is they thought that they would have more BAT after three weeks. And when they measured the BAT, it had remained unchanged. And they found that actually the muscles built um, a thermogenic material in the muscles instead. They increased the mitochondria uh, in, in, the, in the, uh, the muscle tissue. Hmm. And so – but the cold does so many things. Like the stimulus that saved these – that helped these diabetic men out was the cold. It wasn't BAT. Uh, and the cold also did other things. Like when you jump into cold water, um, you'll have vasoconstriction, which means the, your arteries and veins will constrict and put the, the, the blood into your core. Uh, and, and so you have all these muscles in, in your, in your veins that are designed to do that one specific task task, but you can't actually trigger vasoconstriction consciously. You can't be like, constrict hand and then your hand will get cold because all the blood comes up into your core. The only way to do it is by say jumping in snow or taking a cold shower or, or whatever else. And the people who don't expose themselves to environmental changes never exercise those muscles. So they get weak and that leads to cardiovascular disease, which is one of the number one killers in society. And, and so the stimulus of the cold is really, really important, not just for this BAT stuff, but for all sorts 
of different uh, metabolic symptoms. So why are we focusing on pills to be shortcuts for our health when really what our health is designed to do, what our bodies are designed to do is to resist stimulus and that was what makes us healthy. So get uncomfortable and don't just assume a pill is gonna make you better. You know, we could, we could transcribe what you just said, remove, you know, cold and talk about diet and get, you know, like a healthy diet deals with everything, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, you know, various uh, macular degeneration. And meanwhile, we're, you know, we see how quickly and easily these things can be reversed through eating our natural, authentic human diet and, mm -hmm. and seeing everybody on these pills that at best are holding the symptoms at bay a little bit while they slowly right. decline. And, you know, so, so it's kind of part and parcel of the same thing. My, my, um, my business partner and I, Josh Lajani, um, and I run a program called the Big Change Program, and we talk about vitamin P as an essential nutrient, which is pain, which is <laughs> nice. exactly what you're, what you're talking about, that, mm -hmm. um, that you know, our, our profit-driven economy is looking for ways to, to serve it to us in, in a proprietary pill. But, right. you know, it's, and, you know, you can say, well, food, you know, organic, healthy food might be more expensive. And there's cases in which that's true. But there's nobody saying that, like, the water that's in the oceans, rivers, streams, and lakes of our planet that we spend trillions of dollars to heat, if we just, you know, used it at its normal temperature, would have this profound healing effect on most of the things that kill us. Well, it's crazy. And, and I don't want to diminish... You know, the pharma, the pharmaceutical in industry, because obviously there are things that are fantastic about it. Right. I mean, obviously, antibiotics are one of the things that have allowed human civilization to flourish. Right. Uh, there are wonderful things with medicine and nothing about this book says get rid of the of doctors. Right. Uh, medical uh, science is fantastic. But certainly profit driven medicine has an agenda, which is to generate more profits and they want and they realize that 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 uh, that we want shortcuts and that a lot of a lot of the interventions that we have are are trying to be shortcuts to to sort of a health what a healthy lifestyle can give you and you know there's going to be no pill that will give you give you a healthy lifestyle you actually have to put in the work right and one you know and one of the things i think is so appealing about the cold therapy is that it's, it's a different kind of work, and it's work that I think a lot of people could see themselves doing, if, even if they couldn't see themselves giving up their favorite crappy foods. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. there's, there's something accessible, and there's some, it feels like, you know, just like you talked about the superpowers, like there's, there's something about this that, that feels like a very, very powerful gateway to a healthy lifestyle in all other aspects. Yeah, it absolutely is, and when you are able to, uh, you know, realize that, that, that the health relies on three pillars uh, in, uh, of diet, exercise, and environment, rather than just diet and exercise, mm. uh, you're able to now deal with three different variables to make your life better. And, you know, you could still eat crap, but if you have a very good environmental routine, that will help modulate the crappiness of your crappy diet. Um, 
I, I still think you should eat healthy, right? But but you can you can you know when I was in Poland, I was eating horrible food, right? I was eating pierogies and oil and sausage and all the you know delicious so fun stuff, and I was losing weight because uh, the environment was what I was the pillar that I was focusing on. Uh, and you know, you, you, what you really do need is balance in all three of those, uh, uh, to sort of address your health. And, but, but, you know, you can, you can modulate where you put those things, but, but the first step is realizing that all three are important. Right. Well, in a, in a way, in a natural environment, they would be inextricably linked. linked. They would be synergistic. You couldn't, you couldn't get your food without going out into the environment and exerting yourself. Right. And Absolutely, you could, and you and the more you know, the more calories you took in. Like we didn't, you couldn't go to Costco and buy a three and a half pound bag of nuts, <laughs> right? We, <laughs> you just right, you just couldn't get things, even natural foods, in unnatural quantities. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, to to get what you need, you had to brave an environment until we had you know sort of tiered capitalism, and you could pay someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and and. and you know, this is not to say that the modern world is bad, right? Or that, or that the comforts that are available to us are evil in some way. I mean, they can certainly be taken for granted, but I certainly haven't sold my house and gone to live in a cave, right? (laughs) I haven't, I haven't, you know, ditched for the, you know, obviously I have an internet connection. I'm talking to you over Skype right now. You know, we, we live in the very best time ever in the history of humans to be alive. And because we have so much available to us, so much education, so much knowledge, so, so many abilities, like, Hey, I can fly across the world in an airplane, right? I can, I can do all these crazy adventures, things that, you know, even our parents would have had trouble conceiving of as like sort of a lifestyle. And, and, and I guess what the point of this book is, is to realize that with all those advantages also comes the responsibility of understanding how to use them in a way that doesn't, uh, that's not to our detriment. And, and comfort is one of those things we have to keep an eye on. Uh, as are, are you getting too comfortable? And, and when you are, you know, get outside that zone, push yourself a little bit. I mean, this is why the obstacle course race industry is so big in the United States right now and, and across the world, right? Why are people, you know, running the Spartan race and the Tough Mudder and, you know, Warrior Dash and all these other things? Uh, you know, why are they crawling under barbed wire in the mud and, 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 and you know, jumping hurdles and fire and stuff? They're doing it because they need, because part of them realizes that stress it doesn't just make a good Facebook post, but it's actually really beneficial to be in those environments. And, and there's something primal that they're trying to, to, to reach out for. And, and I think that's, that's all really good. I, I'm really heartened by, the, by the, the, the rise of this sort of suffering or, you know, what, what, what we think of as suffering, but actually isn't. It's actually pretty fun. Uh, and, 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 and it's good that, that, that this is happening. And I think that my book is tapping into some of those underlying drives that, that are in society right now. Yeah. What it reminded me of was there's, there's a uh, West African shaman named Maladoma Some who wrote a book on initiation. And, oh. you know, what, in his tri- like, if you looked at what his, like, the 12 and 13-year-olds in his tribe went through, you'd say, oh, my God, that's horrible. That's barbaric. Thank God that mm-hmm. I didn't have to go through that. And, in fact, you know, there are the occasional, every decade or so, there's the occasional death from, from, sure. from the ordeal. And, you know, Westerners are aghast. And he says, 
Well, but look at your uninitiated children. Look at them trying to initiate themselves through right. through gangs, through risky behavior, through alcohol, through drag racing, through right. all this stuff. So it's like, it's like we, that we understand at some primal level that we need these challenges in order to, to not mm-hmm. go crazy. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a cultural thing that's very important. What, what separates the child from the adult? You know, and, and, you know, we feel like we need a challenge to overcome to prove that we are now a responsible, productive member of society. And, you know, I, I don't really go into this in the book in great detail, but I think it is, is, is something very important to that part of being an adult is, is being able to face the world as it is. Uh, and, and yeah, we have no formal way of doing that really in the United States uh, and in much of the world. You know, we're not going to go to war, right? <laughs> or anything like that, kill a lion or whatever it is. But in, in, in that, that sort of separation from, from being a boy to being a man or from being a, a girl into being a woman is very important as part of the human process. And, and it happens for at least most of us at some point, right? At some point you're like, oh, I'm a man now. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it's nice that there's a clearly defined, you know, it, certain cultures have this clearly defined and that, that has been a, an enduring human tradition. Right. So I'm looking at the clock and I realize I've already taken up 11 minutes more of your time than I, than I threatened to. Uh, oh my God. I just, <laughs> I just want to, so uh, an hour, uh, 71 minutes of discomfort with me. You should, uh, you should get, develop some brown adipose tissue out of that. But, um, one final question is like, how has this whole project changed you? I think that the question of resilience is very important. You know, it, it, it's, it's, Understanding that my limits aren't stuck in my youth, right? Is that that I can still take challenges as I enter? You know, I'm 30, what eight now? Uh, that that I still I still have a lot of robustness. I can still do these things, and and you know I I'm not scared of being out in these environments, and I feel good when I take cold showers, and my canker sores are going. I mean, it's really affected a lot of different parts of my life, and. You know, it, it's it's a journey, and and I'm still tweaking it. I'm still not perfect at it, and I don't think, you know, uh, I wouldn't expect the readers to be perfect at it. I don't expect you know people to go out and go climb Kilimanjaro. But I think having this perspective change is is very beneficial, and and I'm a, a happier person for it. Mm. So if if folks want to follow you and find out what you're up to and ah. more, what can they do? Uh, Google is a great tool. Uh, my name is Scott Carney. Uh, the book is What Doesn't Kill Us. We, ha- If you are not bored after the 71 minutes of me talking, there's an audio book uh, available on iBooks and Audible, Ooh, do Twitter, you, do you Facebook. Read it? I do. I read it I, I read it in my closet with, a, with a, a real audio engineer outside my closet. But, oh, I'm so uh, jealous. Uh, and it was it was a lot of fun to, to do it. It turned out actually really good. Uh, and it's a great way to support the book. Uh, but also, you know, the, the, the key that what I want people to do is read it and then be like, oh my God, I have to go try this. <laughs> and, and, and I think I explain it in a way that it's understandable and, and it's going to make people want to go run outside without their shirt in the middle of winter and get looked at like crazy people. But the thing is, you're not the crazy ones. It's the people who are sitting in their cocoon of comfort all the time. They're, they're the crazy ones. Right on. Well, the book worked on me. Awesome. And uh, I downloaded the Wim Hof app, and I'm seriously considering taking one of the trainings. Uh, so it's, 
it was definitely um, infectious, and it's it's beautifully written. Um, it goes into it's so much more than we talked about, and it's I think it's it's definitely on my on my top ten books that have influenced me in my life so far. So it's uh, I'm so grateful for for the work you've done, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch and seeing what what you come up with next. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on, and uh, you know, well, maybe we'll do it again when the next one comes out. Awesome. Thanks so much, Scott. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episodes with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 197. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 196 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up at plantyourself.com slash never and get the Sometimes Say Never report at the same time. Today's show is brought to you by walking. Bipedal locomotion, it's the wave of the future. Walking undoes some of the imbalances caused by too much sitting and provides a great opportunity to enhance neuromuscular coordination through contralateral motion, which is arms and legs moving in opposite directions. Plus, walking in nature or walking with friends just feels good. So, when can you take a 10-minute walk today? Thanks, as always, to Plant Yourself podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious Michelle X, Elspeth Fenlund. Ugh. Sorry, Elspeth. I'm going to try again. Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina. Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis rhymes with circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, and Tom Franzak for your generous support of the podcast. Thanks also to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his gorgeous song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You could write a review on iTunes. I got a whole bunch of new reviews. I'm going to give you two today and then two next week. Here's one. I am hooked from iTunes user Eat Plants Love. I am new, Eat Plants Love says, to the podcasting world. And after hearing Howard interview his guests with such thought-provoking insight, I am now a loyal fan. I am not new to the plant-based world, but after listening to each of Howard's podcasts, I consistently walk away with new information or a new perspective. I highly recommend listening to the Plant Yourself series of podcasts to just enhance your current understanding of the plant-based world and human behavior. Keep them coming. All oh, thank you so much, Eat Plants Love. And one, this one from Indie Critty, insightful two exclamation points. I have been listening to this podcast since the very beginning and feel bad for never giving him the five stars he deserves. The quantity and quality of his guests is mind-blowing, very prolific. He is kind, intelligent, and pure of heart. Keep up the good work, Howie. We are listening and learning. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know what to say. Thank you so much. But I will say, imagine someone who doesn't know about plants and running and cold exposure and environmental action and everything else that we talk about coming across those reviews. It might get them to take a listen, and it might help us spread the message. So, this is all by way of encouraging you, if you haven't yet left a review on iTunes, to please go and do so. 
And another great way to help the show is to become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing gift to the podcast. You can do that right at plantyourself.com. On the right sidebar, you'll see the links. In garden news, there's not much garden news. This is one of those weeks where just not much happens. And in running news, this is one of those periods where I'm working hard, but I'm not seeing a lot of progress. And I know these plateaus happen where I just sort of push and push and my times don't get any better. And it doesn't feel like my stride is improving or my gait. And this is one of those periods I have to just push through with awareness and and faith that the work that I'm putting in now is going to pay off down the road. So that's all for this week. As always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Jerome Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoraska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.